Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, we're talking with author Jason A. Michael. Jason will forever be a native Detroiter. He earned his journalism degree from Wayne State University and received the Spirit of Detroit Award from the Detroit City Council in 2005 for his contributions to the community through journalism. After graduating from Wayne State, he joined the staff of Between the Lines, a Detroit-based news and arts weekly serving Michigan's LGBTQ community. His work has also appeared in the anthology, Journeys Across the Rainbow, Inspirational Stories, for the human race. This anthology was a winner of a Publishers Marketing Association's Benjamin Franklin Award and a 2001 Independent Publisher Award. Jason also contributed to the college textbook, America Now. In 2001, he profiled actress-activist Yolanda King. King was so impressed with the accuracy and eloquence of his profile that she arranged for him to meet her mother, the legendary civil rights activist Coretta Scott King, on a trip to Atlanta. He received the Media Award at the LGBT Community Pride Banquet in 2005 in recognition of his work. Jason has a passion for urban music and spent many years working with Grammy Award-winning songwriter and soul diva Betty Wright. Wright rose to fame in the 1970s with hits such as Clean Up Woman and Tonight is the Night. He's interviewed everyone from Motown legends Martha Reeves and Mary Wilson to Dionne Warwick and Patti LaBelle. But Jason's love of music isn't limited to any one genre. He's also interviewed a wide range of stars, including Dolly Parton, Melissa Etheridge, and Boy George. In 2007, Jason released his first entertainment biography, Strength of a Woman, the Phyllis Hyman Story. Phyllis Hyman, a singer and actress, was best known for her singles in the late 1970s and early 1990s. She also performed on Broadway in the 1981 musical Sophisticated Ladies, based on the music of Duke Ellington. Her performance earned her a Theatre World Award and a Tony Award nomination for Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical. Hyman spent her days and nights engaged in an exhausting battle against bipolar disease. She unfortunately died too soon at the age of 46 in 1995. A huge fan of Hyman's artistry, Jason used his skills as a journalist to bring light 
to the singer's life in his powerful biography. The book received much critical acclaim and went on to become an Essence Magazine bestseller. After 18 years, Jason continues to write for Between the Lines and publishes under his own imprint, J.A.M. Books, LLC. Jason, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you. How are you today? Thank you, Michelle. I'm thrilled to be here with you, my dear old friend, and I'm doing great. I'm on vacation. I'm, I'm down south getting some rest and relaxation. And I have two thoughts after hearing you read my bio. The first is that it's been a long time since I've been in an anthology. People like you and me need to get something happening because I don't think anthologies come out quite like they used to. And um, I would, would love to be in more. I think, you know, with, with everything being so Internet-driven, um, you know, we don't see anthologies. Unfortunately, in the LGBT community, from my experience, it was always hard to find anthologies to contribute to because they were so oftentimes sexually graphic. They were LGBT erotica. Mm. And I just wanted to find some um, regular, I guess, anthologies for some classic storytelling. So let's work on trying to find those. And the second point is that 18 years I've been writing for Between the Lines. Maybe I need to update the bio and just say many years because I'm really starting to give my age <laughs> when you figure I've been writing for the paper for almost 20 years now. Wow. You know, and really I think that, you know, although we share that Between the Lines, I mean, it's like you are, when I think of this, the broader community and then there's my community. You're part of my community. I mean, we see each other at all types of events. We yeah. share ideals. We know many of the same people. And I agree with you. It's important. We need to do an anthology because there's great stories. There's people who we've lived amazing lives. And some of the things that might have happened back when we were in elementary school, right before we started at Between the Lines. See, I fixed <laughs> it for you. You know, that is different than the experience that people have now, you know. Sure. And so, I mean, when you get back from your restful vacation, <laughs> we'll have to sit down and talk about that. I so, love that. But, you know, I think that would be great, you know, and we'll and round up to people and just sort of sit down and, and do it, you know. One of the beauties of technology, it would make it a lot easier than we had to pen and pencil and stuff. That's so, right. There ain't nothing to it but to do it. Exactly. You know, and like no matter where you are, even down in the sunny south, um, I've seen you in Chicago, I've seen you all over, but you will forever be a native Detroiter. Um, what side are you, east side, west side? Southwest, actually. Southwest. And oh. I always will be a Detroiter, you're right. I've got Motown in my blood, and um, I love being from the Motor City. I've always, I lived in Miami for seven years. I lived in North Carolina. And in all the places that I've gone to, I always love being able to say I'm from Detroit. Mm -hmm. Now, did you always want to write? I know that you went to Wayne State for journalism, but back when little Jason was coming along, were you always a collector of stories, somebody who wanted to write? You know, my first major in college was actually psychology. I thought that I would go into the the field of psychology until I realized I'd have to have at least my master's, if not my Ph.D., to really do the type of work I wanted to do. And I sort of, it just sort of dawned on me that I'd always been writing. From the time I was a little kid, I would write songs, I would write poems, I would write stories. I was always a writer. 
and and so I said, you know, instead of trying to find something to become, why don't I just do what I've always done and be who I already am, and that's a writer. Mm. Well, the people who are, you know, like when you said, I'm I'm going to be what I'm always been. I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. They said, well, glad you finally figured that out, you know, because they knew it all along. Well, you know, it 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 made sense to a lot of people. I think, you know, when I was very little, my my grandmother had aspirations. She wanted me to be an attorney. She wanted me to make the big bucks. And my grandfather, because I was raised with my mother, but also my grandparents. We lived with my grandparents. And my grandfather was a preacher, and that's what he always wanted for me to become was a preacher. So, uh, but I think when I when I took up writing, they they said, yeah, that's about right. That fits. So. Mm. And no looking back, huh? No, looking back, um, I'm wondering, right now I'm looking forward with curiosity, I would say, because I'm, I'm trying, I know I'm jumping ahead in the interview, but I'm trying to see if I have another book in me. So I'm not looking mm. back, but I'm looking forward, and, and now we're, we just mentioned an anthology. I'm trying to see, I guess, what my next move uh, can be, because I've been a little stagnant, except for my work with BTO, which I continue to do. But um, no, only only looking forward, no looking back. Well, you know, when you crack into to journalism, and I mean, you and I both know, um, few and far between sometimes to get in there. And then here is this local paper between the lines where you really, I mean, you've done a lot of things, but you found home. How hard was it for you to break into just writing, and do you find that was between the lines the, the open door where many others had been shut? Uh, well, I started doing some entertainment writing and writing bios and entertainment stories when I was working for Betty Wright and living in Miami. And mm-hmm. actually, you know, even, when, even before that, I was editor of my high school newspaper, I should say. Mm-hmm. And, and then I transitioned to doing entertainment writing when I worked for The Cleanup Woman, and then um, I moved back to Detroit and went to Wayne State. And my very first journalism class was taught by the great Jack Lessenberry, who, of course, writes for Metro Times. And at that time, I don't know if he does today, but at that time, Jack taught the very first and very last class in the journalism program. And in that very first class, my, my very first uh, term at Wayne State, he, asked, he said, how many of you want to be you know, reporters, writers, raise your hand? And, of course, I raised mine. And he said, go to the South End newspaper and apply and start writing for the paper. Mm, mm-hmm. Before I'd even taken a news reporting class, I approached the South End, and actually they kindly allowed me to begin writing for them. And so I wrote for them all the while I uh, attended Wayne State and until such time as I ran into Susan Horowitz and Jan Stevenson from Between the Lines. We were at an event at the Detroit Film Festival, and it was right after uh, Black History Month. And I had done a series of stories for Black History Month, so I always kept a couple newspapers in the back seat of my car. And I, I, I grabbed a, a few newspapers and ran up to Susan and said, you know, here are some samples of my work. I'd really love to write for you. And sure enough, they called me a couple weeks later and asked me to start freelancing for them. And I'd only been freelancing for a month and maybe two before they brought me on full-time uh, as a senior staff writer. And I stayed full-time for two years uh, until I wanted to pursue some other options. So they let me stay on as a contributing writer. 
and um, the rest is history. Now, I know that you say that you had this passion for urban music. Southwest Detroit to Miami, working with the cleanup woman. How did that happen? Well, um, as much as I love Detroit, and as I said, I've, I've been, I did live in Miami for seven years, but I've been back 20 years, believe it or not. Um, I felt in high school I had some wild oats to sow and that there was more <laughs> of the world that I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I had always thought I would move out to California. I was into acting and singing and had some aspirations of, of being a movie star. And um, instead, I met a young man who lived in Miami, and I flew down to see him for spring break of my senior year. I had just turned 18. And uh, he turned out to be my first love. And not only did I fall in love with him, I fell in love with the city of Miami. So three days after I graduated high school, I loaded up my meager belongings into a little U-Haul trailer that I pulled behind <laughs> my car. It was a mm-hmm. 1987 Mercury Topaz Red, as I recall. And I mm-hmm. ruined the transmission, by the way. But I, I towed that trailer down to Miami with my little belongings. And um, I'd been there about three years. And I, through a friend, I, I, I met a friend who, whose godmother actually was Betty Wright. And I'd always loved soul music, especially Motown coming, you know, from Detroit. And so I got the, the honor of meeting her. And I got to know her over about a course of a year. And she brought me on to work in her office. And I became her office manager, her personal assistant, babysitter to the kids, chauffeur, <laughs> Right-hand man, whatever she needed at that particular moment in time, uh, that's what I did. And I still, on occasion, even do some work uh, for Betty to today. And I still go back to Miami every January to celebrate my birthday. And I saw her while I was there this past year, I mean this past January. Well, you know, it's funny because when when you say, like, when I think Miami, you know, the first thing that comes to me is like, okay, Gloria Estefan and, you know, that, that, that Latin dancing salsa beat. And here you came from Motown to hit and to Miami, and then you get with, with, with Betty Wright. I mean, how, how, you know, was that like sort of surprising to you that here I love Motown, I'm leaving Motown, and now I'm sort of like back into R&B? It was meant to be, I suppose. I mean, it all it all fell mm-hmm. together very organically. Like I said, I always loved mm-hmm. music, always loved soul music, loved the, the, the soul sisters of the late 60s, the 70s, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Betty Wright, Betty LeVette, you know, um, all those types of great soul singers. And, um, yeah, music, I love music of all types and forms. And, and uh, you know, we had the Motown sound in Detroit and Betty, was one of the originators of what they called the Miami Sound in the 70s when she recorded on TK Records. And the Miami Sound was sort of a blend of that soul music with more uh, tropical sounds. And mm-hmm. um, I, working for Betty was um, amazing. It opened a lot of doors for me. I got to meet so very many people, you know, celebrities and entertainers and singers that I'd looked up to for years and got to travel. And... Um, I'm I'm so glad, you know, things just happen sometimes you're in the right place and, and I'm I'm so glad that I uh fell into Betty Wright's path and you know, knowing her has forever changed my life and, and uh that's my girl, always will be. 
You know, they say that, you know, Detroit, this area, we export more great musicians than any other place. Like you'll find that, have you found that when you get someplace and you're look, looking at entertainers and stuff, do you see that Motown, that Detroit influence and where you immediately sort of feel like kind of at home with it well, in your travels? Badly, it's not just musicians. I think Detroit uh, exports some of the greatest talent in many fields of any place because people unfortunately continue to move out of Detroit and out of Michigan in record numbers. And I just, among my Facebook page, I have so many younger friends, and it seems like every week I'm checking a status, one of them has left the city and left the state and moved to Atlanta or Miami or, you know, just someplace out of Michigan. And that's really, really sad for me. I've been hearing about, since I moved back to Detroit, which was in 1997, I've been hearing about Detroit's renaissance. But it still has not come about to the point that we're keeping, um, you know, the talent that we're cultivating. And um, I know that's not the topic of the interview, but I think that that's very, very sad. And, and I wish we could do something to, to keep more of our talent, including our musical talent and creative talent, uh, you know, in the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan. You know, and I think that that's so true because I agree with you. You know, even though, like, they're talking about how Detroit is sort of, of coming up and all these wonderful things that are happening, but you still see our best and brightest, particularly young people, you know, are leaving. They don't see that future here, you know. And um, it is something, and... When you talk to someone, I mean, I think that especially as you travel, like you said, you have your, your friends and you tell them how you came back and you're still here. If they, what do you say to them if they were like, oh, man, I've been thinking about coming back, but I don't know. What would you say to someone? Well, you know, I'm not the best person to ask. In all honesty, I'm considering leaving again myself. As I'm getting mm-hmm. a little older, I am thinking about my future, and I'm considering the possibility of relocating back to Florida uh, because I cannot stand the cold. I hate the cold, mm-hmm. although the past couple winters have been mild, thank God. But the other thing is that even though... Detroit is making progress, and yes, we have Ferndale and Royal Oak. It is so much easier in some of these other large cities simply to be gay, simply mm-hmm. to live life as an out, open gay person with no drama, with no fear of verbal attacks or physical attacks. And that was one of the, the, the biggest shocks to me all the way back in 1990 when I moved to Miami how open and accepting that city was even back then. And as you can imagine today, I mean, you know, if you're not gay, you're not trendy. <laughs> and, and so um, I'm, I'm thinking because of the weather and, and just uh, I, I will admit perhaps I would walk down the street in Ferndale or Royal Oak holding, you know, my boyfriend's hand if I had one. But um, that's something I've been able to do in Miami, you know, for 27 years. So I'm thinking myself even about relocating. So I think, um, I don't know, I think, you know, there's that book, The Rise of the Creative Class, and and Mm. it, it talks about people, you know, leaving Michigan. Michigan is just not seen as a forward thinking state. Uh, and and um, 
I don't know. I, I guess we'll see in this next uh, gubernatorial election, you know, who, who if, if the Democrats can take back the state. And um, it, it's just going to take some work. There's a lot of closed-mindedness still in the state of Michigan and even in the city of Detroit. And until that changes, I think people are going to continue to leave the city and the state. Well, you know, I certainly understand because, like I often tell people, I – other than on um, Pride weekends, I often feel the need to leave Michigan <laughs> to go someplace to where I can get my gay fix, you know, where you can yes, feel yes. okay to, to walk and just be you. Because, like you said, maybe in Ferndale, maybe, in, and even though you do, there's that moment, there's a little doubt. And I don't know, I'm, you know, I'm it's a way. long time coming, you know. It's a and long... there's been talks for some years about establishing, you know, we do we have the open-mindedness of Ferndale, perhaps, or Royal Oak, but we don't have a gay neighborhood as so many other major cities do, you know. And there's been talk for years of trying to establish that in Detroit, and the, the talks have all sort of stopped. I know Curtis Lipscomb, Charles Pugh, when he was in office, they were, they mm-hmm. were trying to work toward establishing a gay neighborhood, and... Um, you know, you do have to sort of get out of the state and out of the city to get your gay fix. And for mm-hmm. me, usually that, that's Miami in the winter, and I always try to get to Chicago in the summer when I can and head to Boys Town. And, um, you know, it's a shame you got to go away to get that. But, you know, maybe these young kids, they're a little bolder, you know, than I've gotten to be now that I'm in my 40s. But uh, I, I don't completely feel comfortable, even in Royal Oak or Ferndale. And um, mm-hmm. you do have to go away sort of to get that gay fix, as you said. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, with that, we're going to take our first short break. Um, if you're just joining us, I am talking to Jason Michaels, who is an author, uh, a journalist, a, a traveler, and a friend. We'll be right back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. <laughs> This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. And we're back with Jason. You know, um, I hear what you're saying. I totally agree with you. And I think that also, you know, as a creative person, you know, I know that we're, our creative people are still leaving. Many of our creative people are people who are LGBTQ and feel that they can't totally express it um, here. And even though right. you see sure. that, and being someone who has been, you've had a lot of, of work in the entertainment industry. You, you've interviewed people and you've done it. And although we see like on TV and, you know, in the movies, we're seeing more and more queer characters come out. 
it's not really translating into the neighborhood. It's sort of like I often tell people it's like remember when um, the first black you saw him on TV and it always had to be something funny. And I would sit back and sort of like bristle and go like, you know what, but at my house we're not funny. You know, we're not funny all right. the time. Right. And it's sort of like in a lot of the media that we're seeing, it's sort of like, well, either we're like hyper-sensualized or, you know, there's always that, that one scene where they're going to bring in the lesbians kissing, you know, always. Or, you know, this, or, you know we're, we're still artsy, we're still this, we're still that. And so you still do a lot of work in the entertainment field. You're talking to people. How do you feel... Do you talk to people? Are they open about being people who are out and open? We know there's one or two people who we know are gay, but they aren't out and open. But do you feel that there's more acceptance? And in your writing, as you, you, you go out and you interview someone who's LGBTQ or an ally, do you find that there's you just sort of go in and you're Jason and you don't have to go in and and feel worried about, you know, are they going to talk to me because you're gay? It's like, oh, hey, you know, let me tell you your story. You know, I still meet with resistance. Uh, even <laughs> last year, for example, I was covering Ferndale Pride, did a mass wedding ceremony. I think it was three or four couples who got married, the first ceremony of its kind at the Michigan Pride since the uh, Supreme Court ruling for mi- marriage equality. And even there, there was a couple getting married who chose not to speak to me because they, they, they didn't want their story told in the gay paper. And here they are, mm. a gay couple getting married, and they still did not want their story told in the gay paper. And uh, there are still times where I, I have to contact straight sources, and they've not heard of the paper. And when I identify the paper, they're not always, you know, as an LGBT publication, they're not always accommodating. So, mm. you know, it's, we're, <laughs> we've come a long way, baby, yeah, but there's still a long way to go. Mm. Now, I know that you've interviewed Motown legends. Um, I know, um, and people, everyone from DM work, Patti LaBelle, you know. In fact, I saw you at a Patti LaBelle concert, you know. Yes. Um, but uh, you say that you're, you're not limited to just that. Who was your most interesting interview? And in a genre that you normally, people would be surprised that you even knew about or went and talked to? I've had a lot of interesting uh, interviews. Uh, Dolly Parton was a great one because growing up, she was always my favorite entertainer. I, I had a big love for Dolly Parton as a kid, so it was great to be able to interview her for Between the Lines. And um, Boy George was interesting, too, because he was actually in a bad mood when he got on the phone. He'd been speaking to a reporter, and uh, actually it was, I believe it was a reporter with the Oakland Press, and they apparently did not know much of his history, and I guess their questions were not very informed. So he was not in a good mood at all, but having been a fan of his, you know, and Culture Club since, you know, they came out in the early 80s, I guess I asked some better questions than the guy before me. And as a matter of fact, after he invited me backstage to his show when he came, and as he was hanging up the phone, I heard him speaking to his publicist who was sitting next to him, and he said, this guy was all right. This guy knew who I was. Ah. So mm-hmm. 
that made me feel mm-hmm. good. So who's on your playlist? Oh, my God, you would not believe my playlist. My, I, I, I still, I don't have a playlist on my phone. I still use my iPod. My, I think the iPod, <laughs> the iPod is one of the greatest uh, technological inventions I've seen in my life. Uh, and um, I just have everything and everybody on my playlist, going back to Betty and Dolly and a lot of 70s soul and uh, Don Legend. I'm seeing Don Legend in concert. I think it's either next week or week after. Cannot wait to see Don Legend. And I find new and interesting acts. Like I, I was uh, on YouTube, and I found a young man named Isaiah who was the winter winner of Australia's version of X Factor, and I happened to hear his single, his new single, and was just blown away and found out that he had released an album of all the songs he sang on the show, which were covers. Here's this, like, 16-year-old uh, male, and he's covering songs like Adele's Hello and Beyonce's Halo and just totally reinterpreting these songs. So I love when I find a new artist or when mm-hmm. I find an older artist that I wasn't familiar with. Like I have the complete recordings of Frankie Lyman on my iPod, mm. for example, you know, mm-hmm. huge Frankie Lyman fan, you know. So you would find a little bit of everything on my iPod, on my playlist. Well, I, you know, I am right there with you. In fact, um, I have a place that I go and I'll do like some, some work in this guy. He said, you know, you have a really unusual playlist going there and I think because like he had listened to me go everywhere from you know Frank Sinatra down to Valerie June and I think a little bit of Azalea Banks and mixed in and he was like wow you listen to some strange stuff I said well you know it's it's not strange it's music and it appeals to a different part now you've done a lot of of interviews and you've written columns and you've done that how difficult was it for you to go from doing an interview, which is kind of kind of short, to write saying, I'm going to sit down and write a book? Well, um, I had actually, I, I've written a novel, which was never published, actually. So mm-hmm. I, I have a novel that's been sitting on the shelf for probably 20 years now. Um, and... That I wrote over the course of a couple of years while I was working for Betty and living in Miami, as a matter of fact. And um, I couldn't find a publisher for it uh, because, again, it was not, it was a a gay love story, basically. And there wasn't enough, I guess, erotic elements to attract a publishing house. But with with the case of, of the Phyllis Hyman story, it sort of, originated with me being a fan. I, I loved Phyllis, and when she passed, I was living in Miami and working for Betty Wright, and I saw that Betty was devastated that Phyllis had taken her own life, but she wasn't surprised. And I think mm. my journalistic instincts sort of kicked in and said, there must be a story there. So I began researching her for the first time while I was still living in Miami. And I had no experience in writing a biography. I only got so far, and I sort of stopped. Uh, Then I moved, relocated back to Detroit. And in about 19, maybe 98, for the second time, I started working on the project. And I reached out to Phyllis's estate. And they told me, no, stop, don't do it. 
we're working on our own authorized biography. And, uh, you know, so I, I stopped for a time. And then in about 2002, no book had ever materialized. And at that point, you know, she'd been gone seven years. And it just sort of dawned on me, if I ever wanted to read a book about Phyllis Hyman, I was going to have to write one. So for mm. the third time, I took up the torch and started working on the book. And writing a biography is sort of like putting together a puzzle. You, be, you began speaking with the people who are sort of on the periphery or the outer edge, like with a puzzle, you, you, you do the frame first. And you, from getting these people who have smaller pieces of the puzzle, then you begin to learn the questions to ask those on the inside who have more puzzle pieces to contribute. And I just chugged along and said, no one's going to stop me from writing this book. And the estate actually approached me, and they were not happy again, but I was determined not to be stopped. And eventually, after some negotiation, I was able to get the estate to come on board and make the book an authorized biography. So I guess you could say it was sort of out of necessity that I wrote the Phyllis Hyman story because I was desperate to know what that story was, and no one else was going to tell it to me. You know, I find it. Um, I know that you did this on uh, your own imprint, J.A.M. Books, and I know that, yeah, um, a while, I, I can't even remember to tell you, I'd say, a few years back, I was at D.C. Pride, um, and I was on a panel with authors, and I was talking to a young African-American writer, and he was t we were talking about writing, and he said something like what you did. He said that when he wrote, he wrote a book that had some gay characters, but it wasn't what people wanted, and so he could never get that novel published so he wrote what they wanted and although he wasn't really totally satisfied with it you know he said well I'm getting published sure I can understand okay. that uh -huh. so when you were started what made you decide to 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 do jam books well jam books uh, you know necessity is the mother of invention as they say mm -hmm. and I went through two literary agents, two well-known, highly successful literary agents who repped New York Times best-selling authors, and both told me that they were confident they could sell my book. In mm. fact, the first one I signed with, it was uh, September 2004, and he told me, I have this project sold by Thanksgiving, and I'll have you a $20,000 advance. And, of course, that never materialized, and I found the second agent. And what I learned through the process is that when you sign, for example, with a literary agent and you're an unknown entity, you've made them no money. So until mm. you make them some money, you're not a priority to them. They have a list of authors, a list, excuse me, of, of editors. They're, they're short lists, and they'll send out your proposal to these people they have relationships with. And if any of them bite, they bite. If none of them bite, they basically do nothing for you. And that's what happened to me. If you visit my website, www.phyllishymanstory.com, there's a letter I wrote to Phyllis's fans, and I include some of the passages 
from the rejection letters that I received, they, they virtually all said the same thing. They said the writing was great. If I ever decided to write about another subject, to let them know. But that Phyllis had not been a big enough star. Mm. Phyllis was not well-known enough. She'd not become a cult icon. It was too long after her death for a book about her to do well. So when the first agent couldn't sell the book, my friend said, put the book out yourself. And I said, no, no, I don't want to. I don't have an interest in being a book publisher. I found the second agent. Second agent failed to sell the project, and I just sort of said, just like if I wanted to read a book about Phyllis, I was going to have to write one. If I wanted to see a book about Phyllis published, I decided I was going to have to publish it. And so I created Jam Books to publish the book. And um, the book did get out there. The book is currently out of print. And uh, I feel that's my failure. And that, again, is why I did not want to be a publisher, because that's not where my interests lie. And I'm a creative soul, not necessarily a business mm-hmm. individual. And... It was my intention the book never be out of print, yet I failed, and it, it, it did end up out of print. And uh, so I'm shopping. I'm looking for a publisher to actually put the project out again, at least get an e-book out there. Um, mm-hmm. But I, the short answer to your question that I took the long answer to get to is that I wanted the book published and no one else would do it, so I decided to publish it myself. Well, as you put together the pieces of these, of this puzzle did Phyllis really come alive to you to where you know at sometimes could you hear her talking to you could you could you hear her mind working and how she was doing it the more you the deeper you dug and the more you found out about her in in writing Phyllis's story and learning about her I had to try to get inside of her head which was not always a very comfortable place to be. And I went through some very dark periods working on the story. And, of course, like Phyllis, I myself suffer from bipolar disorder and uh, have had my battles with mental illness. And so it was scary because the periods were so dark, I had to untangle what, what were Phyllis's issues, what were my own issues, where they were intertwined, and and uh, it, uh, it was a difficult path. Um, Phyllis was more, of course, than than her mental illness. She had an incredible sense of humor, a wonderful sense of humor, an electrifying performer, great actress. She was just a, a stunningly beautiful woman. But to really get into the, the darkest regions of her mind is what I had to try to do. And... Um, I had, for example, her journals from when she was in rehab, letters she wrote to her her family and herself as a a younger child uh, about her issues. So there were some some dark periods in telling her story. But that's what you have to do um, to be able to present a, a truthful portrait of an individual is to try to actually get inside their head. The other the other thing is that I had. Um, no bias going into it. I went into it with, a, with an open mind, and I prayed for what I call the gift of discernment, because a lot of people, Phyllis, through her moods and her temperament and her mental health issues, had affected a lot of people, both negatively and positively. So as they relayed their stories and their accounts to me, they were filtered through 
their 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 feelings toward Phyllis. If she had hurt their feelings, if if she had made them uncomfortable, uh, or if she had been incredibly kind or generous to them, I had to get to the bottom of why do they feel the way they feel? Not just what they're telling me, but why are they seeing this the way they're seeing this? And try to get to the heart of the issue and present the raw truth. And many people, thank God, have told me that reading the book felt to them like Phyllis was doing the talking. And that was Mm. always my goal, to allow Phyllis to tell her own story. And I pray I got that right. Yeah. And um, did you form any lasting relationships with any of her close friends or family through this process? I I did. I formed some great friendships uh, uh, through writing Phyllis' story. Um, there, there were people who uh, were fans of Phyllis's who, who helped me um, that I can remember being so excited each time I would conduct an interview with someone, uh, my good friend Regina Carter who lived in Cincinnati, she and mm-hmm. I would get on the phone and kiki and, and, you know, dissect the interview and talk about, you know, what we had just learned. My great friend, Bill Schultz, who lives in Detroit, who was Phyllis's travel manager and personal assistant for the last 10 years of her life, he was very reluctant to help me at first. He sort of put me through the paces and made me prove that my intentions were honorable before he would open up to me and help me with the book. And once he saw I was coming from a good place, he became a great friend of mine. And he's my concert buddy. He's, he has a love of music that is probably even greater than mine. And he has an iPod that has even more uh, variety than mine has. He loves all types of music. And um, so he's become a great friend. We've traveled together. We, we go to concerts together all the time. He was with me when I saw you at Patty LaBelle, and we're going back to see Patty. I think she's coming back to Motor City in October. So, and together we've seen Terry Burris, who was Phyllis' musical director, came to town this past summer. We saw him. Vincent Wolf, uh, you know, another friend of Phyllis's. Phyllis's play son, Tim Holloway. I see him every time I go to Vegas. And so many of her friends, you know, were on Facebook. Her family, her sister Anita, were all on Facebook, and we sort of keep up with each other's lives. And um, I have made some great and enduring friendships, you know, thanks to my efforts to tell Phyllis's story. You know, I find it interesting how you said how... I'm sorry. Let me just interject for one second. So many great, beautiful souls who were Phyllis Hyman fans have reached out to me either via email or through Facebook, and we've developed some really great friendships. Daryl Presley, who lives in Fort Lauderdale, every time I go to Florida, he just cracks me up. I have the best time with him. Jeffrey Graham, who lives in Texas. I can go on and on and on. People all around the globe who love Phyllis, who found me after the book came out and have become dear, dear friends of mine. You know, that's where I was going to go because I'm, I'm thinking about when you were saying that, you know how the one publisher said, you know, like she wasn't an icon. She was, I know people who love Phyllis Hyman. Well, I mean, when they start to, when they start to talk about, them, about her and her music and to have this, this, this guy go like, you know, well, she wasn't, she was an icon. She wasn't big enough. I mean, that is just amazing to me that they would do that. And when you look, you know, she had these singles, 
She had she was uh, a Tony Award nomination. I mean, she performed on Broadway. And how come? Why? Why is it that we know that there's this this army of people who love her still, and that they uh, didn't see that? I think the publishing. I think there are a few factors. I think at the time my project was being shopped, it was not long after the Dinah Washington bio had come out and it flopped. That said, it was a very different book, a very different type of book than my book. I, I, I read it, and it was much more um, um, academic than the story that I wrote. And the publishing industry, they're very narrow-minded. And as mm-hmm. I said, they don't want to go out of their way. There's so many facets to fill us a story you know, opportunities to partner with mental health agencies. And, and if, even if you're not familiar with Phyllis, the struggle of a black woman in an entertainment industry controlled by white men, uh, you know, who forged her own path. So many facets to the story. But the publishing industry and the publishing houses have a very narrow view. They want something that's going to sell without them having to do very much work. And I can remember, Michelle, I was heartbroken because there was a publishing house that had expressed interest in the project, and they ultimately turned it down, and they released a biography, and I'm not afraid to say the name. It was by Kareen Steffens, who goes by the nickname of Superhead, who is known, Mm -hmm. frankly, as being a video hoe, and in her books, she recounts the stories of all the rappers she's slept with. And Mm -hmm. they turned down my project, my biography of Phyllis Hyman, and instead decided to publish her story, which, God forgive me for judging, I have to say was trash. And, and they have no problem doing that because they don't mm-hmm. feel a need to uplift the community. They just want to sell some books. So whenever they mm-hmm. think we'll easily sell some books, you and I, of course, know how many fans Phyllis has from all across mm-hmm. the globe. Again, if you look at my website, www.phyllishymanstory.com, we have a feedback page with some of the letters I've received. And there are people, again, all across the continent, Japan, Belgium, France, Switzerland, Germany, uh, just everywhere, from everywhere, who've read the book and been touched by the book. And we know she was loved across the globe. But unfortunately, people could not see the vision. And... um, you know, they're lost. You know, and that's, and that's the thing that, it, like you said, on so many levels, I mean, to talk about her and the industry, what she went through, the being bipolar, her struggles, the fact that some people loved her so while, how some of her other relationships are doing. This is such a, this is a full life. This is a real story. But like you said, often, you know, the the trash, you know, the the things that are going to be titillating and and don't uplift. That's we see that happen all the time. You know, we you see know, we great pro- Maury Povich reality mm-hmm. type of mm-hmm. world these days, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm sensing that even I even though, and I don't think that um, personally, I don't think that you're a failure because it went out of print. I think that. Um, it was an important story that, that told you told it, you made it happen, and you saw that through. Now, and tomorrow, 
who knows what could happen. But anyhow, I don't think that you were a failure. But um, after doing that, that hard work, after you, you put Phyllis down, you finished that book, and you said that sometimes you're thinking about doing another one, from that experience, what would you tell that if you were going back, what would you tell a younger Jason saying, hey, man, I did a book. Let me tell you about it. What have you learned and what are you going to take into and what are you considering going into another project? Well, to answer the first part of your question, what would I tell a young writer? That's difficult because I would have to measure my comments with a certain amount of realism and if I were to tell the writer, for example, follow your heart, follow your passion, I would have to include a warning that that may lead you down the road I took, which is publishing your own story, because mm-hmm. you may not find an audience. If I had written the 100th book on Madonna or Michael Jackson you know, or, or, or someone like that, I could have found a publishing deal. But trying to tell an original story about a unique woman such as Phyllis Hyman, I had to put it out myself. When I consider my next project, the people that I'm interested in writing about, uh, you know, I have an interest in Donnie Hathaway, who also struggled with mm. illness, would love to write Donnie Hathaway's story, would love to write Tina Marie's story, one of my favorites, mm. he would love to write the Tina Marie story. But the problem I would probably have with both these projects is I would come up against the same brick wall I did with Phyllis. I may not be able to find a publishing house to take on these projects. So I guess I I would um, caution that young writer I was talking to, you know, that there are consequences sometimes to following your passion and following your heart. If you're committed to the story, tell the story. Just realize you may have to be the one to get that story out there yourself. Now, I remember not long after your book came out, and I think the name of the place was called Pink. It was on the east side. And um, and it was to celebrate. Now, I want to say that June... June Washington. Washington uh, did a... Did a I guess you call it a book signing, but it was more than that. It was a it's celebration. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a... How did you feel when you walked in there, when you saw, I mean, it's one thing that someone said, I'm going to give you a release party and everything, but when you got there and you saw the people and felt, how did you feel about the journey you had taken with this project? Well, I felt uh, a tremendous sense of relief and gratitude to the universe and to God when I finished the project. Um, there were definitely times throughout the journey that I never thought I would cross the finish line. So when I did, uh, it was like the old spiritual, my soul looks back and wonder at how I got over. <laughs> That's very much how I mm-hmm. felt. Um, but the experience of promoting the book was bittersweet because putting the book out myself, I had such limited resources when it came to marketing and promotion. I spent 2500 which to me was a significant amount of money, on a publicist who did what I would consider 
a very minimal amount of work because that's what a publicist earns not for a project but maybe for a month you know it was 25 mm-hmm. so i didn't have money to keep throwing at a publicist to try to keep the momentum alive june washington is one of my favorite people on the planet and it was so kind mm-hmm. to throw me that party at pink ice my friend Vane came out and sang Phyllis songs. My great mm. friend Diva, who Diva's one of those talents who left Michigan. She's now in Jacksonville, Florida. She came oh. out, and you know she's an incredible female impersonator. Mm-hmm. She had sewn the night before, an incredible outfit, Phyllis-inspired outfit. She did a fabulous job. And these were my friends. All I could do for them were give them flowers, give them roses, because I didn't even have any 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 money, you know, to to give them for doing this, you know. I it was taking all I had to get the project out. I had to borrow heavily to get the project out. So promoting the book was bittersweet uh, because it was such a thrill to um, have the book out. But I didn't even have, for example, a, a photographer, a friend of a friend, took pictures of that event. And then that friend broke up with that other friend. And <laughs> I've never, ever seen those photos. Oh. So somewhere out there in the universe, there are photos of that pink ice event that I have never, ever seen. There was another event I did at the uh, Philly International store in Philadelphia. There was a photographer who shot the event, and he was trying to sell the photos to uh, a press outlet. And when I reached out to him to see if I could get copies to the photos, he wanted to charge me an incredible sum of money to -hmm. get photos to the event that I threw that he wasn't even invited to. So needless to say, I don't even have photos of those events. So so many of those events went by so quickly. It all went by so quickly, and I don't even have photos to remember them by. So Mm. it it was a bittersweet period of time. Wow. Uh, Okay, we're going to take our second break, and we'll be right back with my guest, Jason Michael, and talk a little bit more about the project and then find out what's next. So we'll be right back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Well, we're back, Jason. Um, I know... When you, I, I mean, really, I mean, I know what it is to write, and when you put yourself into that, and it is, it's like your child, you put it out there, you want the best for it, you want everything to go right, and it's like uh, your child had so many hurdles thrown in front of it. Um, do you still get requests to talk about Phyllis and what happens, you know, um, you said the book is out of print. What happens if someone contacts you and says, hey, but I want to read this? 
Well, there's not much I can say to them um, mm-hmm. if they contact me and say they want to read it. Um, I, I'm trying to get it out, as I said, at least in ebook form. I would mm-hmm. definitely encourage them. You know, if you look on uh, Amazon.com, there are unscrupulous resellers selling the book at astronomical prices. I mean, mm-hmm. I, they they start at something like in the three hundred dollar range. I saw that. <laughs> and someone was asking over a thousand for what they called a new copy. I don't know where they would have gotten a new copy, but they were classifying mm-hmm. it as a new copy and asking over a thousand dollars for it. So I would certainly tell people, as much as I know you want to read the story, and I appreciate that, don't make these people rich uh, in mm-hmm. that effort. Because certainly I'm seeing no money. Phyllis's estate is seeing no money. No one who should be seeing any money is seeing any money from these type of sales. So I would say, if you want to read the story, pray with me that I can find another publisher to take up the mantle and re-release the book. To answer your other question, I I still do interviews Mm -hmm. all the time, particularly this time Mm -hmm. of year. Phyllis's birthday is, is coming up July 6th. Happy, happy, happy birthday in heaven, Phyllis. And the anniversary of her passing is coming up June 30th. And June, of course, is Black Music Month. Happy Black Music Month, everybody. So this time of year, especially, people do reach out to me and ask me to talk. And I'm always, always, always happy to talk about Phyllis and the book. You know, I saw that that one uh, that for 399 and I'm going like, what the heck? And, you know, and... I know but someone people who don't comes. understand, Michelle, and they write me and they say, why are you charging so much for this book? Why, mm-hmm. why can't I get this book at a reasonable price? And I have to explain to them, it's not me. I don't have any mm-hmm. more books. These are people mm-hmm. who, and that's why I'm very cautious. I did have a few left at one time, and when I would sell them, I would make sure I personalized them to the individual who had purchased the book because I didn't know who was buying, and I didn't want to send someone a book that I sold for sixteen ninety five, and have them turn around and charge a hundred dollars for it on eBay or Amazon. So, now, you know, I had some a friend of mine who bought a book from one of those people, and it was something that um, that had been inscribed to somebody, and they turned around and sold it. And it's sort of like, you know, I often want to tell people. You know, don't buy those. I, I am against, like, bootleg things. I said, because the artist doesn't benefit from it. The person who's put their blood, sweat, and tears into this, this, this project doesn't benefit from it. If it's a family, the family doesn't benefit from it. So right. um, I am going to, to light some candles for that, too, because it was a great story. And, um, like I said, when I see fans, they love Phyllis Hyman, and it's a story that needs to be told. And especially, it's a full a story of a full life. And full lives aren't always don't always have happy endings, but there are things that I think that people can learn from it. You know, Jason, we're coming into the home stretch, and I look at your life. I mean, the kid from Southwest Detroit moved to Miami. You know, uh, followed your passion in writing your the roads and music entertainment writing i mean you've had your life is not one lane it's a intersectional superhighway with many lanes and i'd like to ask you how do you feel that the intersections that have influenced your life have impacted the work that you've done and how do you think it's going to impact the journey you take into the future 
That's a difficult question. That's quite a question, Michelle. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I'm a complex individual. I'm, I am made up of, of many different attributes. And, um, you know, I, I remember in Sunday school there was a, there was a little cartoon on the wall of, of a little kid sitting at his desk with his um, chin on his knuckles and it said, I know I'm somebody because God don't make no junk. I've led an interesting life, and I've I have there has been a lot of intersectionality. Um, I, I happen to be a white male who considers myself a member of Detroit's vibrant African American LGBT community. That's where my heart and soul lies, and I've been accepted by the people who I call my people. And when I wrote the Phil Simon story, for example, I didn't include my photo in the back of the book because I didn't want someone to have a preconceived notion, oh, this book about this black woman has been written by a white man. I wanted them to read the book free of any preconceived notions and just take the story as it, as it was at, at face value. So I, I've lived a very complex life. I, I, I had a, a college professor once who said that, that God poured the wrong paint on me, hmm. which, which is... is it's difficult, it's, you know. It's, it's a blessing, yet it's difficult at the same time because you 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 you, tr- you travel through different communities and yet never feel completely at home in any of them, you know. So that's that's been uh, a struggle for me. But you know, God didn't make no junk, so he he gave this little white boy with a love of black folks and black music and all things black culture, and and he gave him a pen and. I've been able to, to write about the things that I'm passionate about. I just had someone on Facebook post, uh, a dear friend of mine who, who's a transgender activist, you know, uh, thanked me cause for the latest story I wrote on a, sur- uh, a, a, a survey that came out on, on transgender violence. Mm-hmm. And as I said in my post on Facebook, it's really great when your passion and your activism and your work and your paycheck intersect and you're able to earn a paycheck for doing what you're passionate about. And I've been blessed to be able to do that, and I thank God for that. Now, Jason, um, well, you are part of my community, and, and and my community just being that community of humankind and, and people who live their dream and share their passion. I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts and your story. And, and, and you know what? And telling Phyllis's story because, you know, she left, but she was looking for someone to put those pieces together. And I thank you for doing that because we don't want her to be another, Lord knows there's enough troubled black women who just get swept by the wayside and forgotten. And I believe that people who read your book, many people saw themselves in it. And some were able to make different changes to understand more of what was going in their mind. So I and thank that's you. My, that's my prayer that they, they can see themselves in Phyllis's story mm-hmm. and learn from it. There's so much to be learned from Phyllis. And I learned so much about my own life and my own struggles uh, through learning about Phyllis. And I thank Phyllis for that. And I love you, Phyllis. Yeah. And you know what? Her birthday is the same day as my son. So, you know, God don't make no oh. junk. <laughs> God don't make no, no junk. junk. <laughs> it's a um, great day. But um, we're going to talk when you get back. I think that idea of the anthology is really great. We have stories to tell. 
Um, there are people that, that others need to know and can inspire um, others, which is the whole purpose of Collections by Michelle Brown. Again, I want to thank you. I want you to rest, relax, have fun. Come on back. <laughs> I will. I look forward to seeing you, and thank you again. Thank you for having me, Michelle. I love you, my friend. Okay. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. So, again, I want to thank our guest tonight and all of our listening audiences here on Collections by Michelle Brown. You can listen to the show each week by following Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. We air every Thursday night at 7 p.m. That's all for today. I hope you'll join us next week when I will introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality and creating change. That's right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Good night.